Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening, thank you for joining me tonight. Still significant problems with the floods. Victoria and New South Wales are on high alert for a second major flooding event. The Murray River is yet to peak. The beautiful Echuca, I recommend you go there when, <laughs> when it's not flooded. It's facing its second major flood peak and up to 2,000 properties are likely to be affected. And Kerrang residents, now Kerrang is where the former Prime Minister, former Prime Minister John Gorton made a famous speech on returning from World War II, it's not far from Echuca. Kerrang residents have been warned they may be isolated for weeks. Two Army Chinook helicopters will join the flood fighting efforts from tomorrow. But the bad news is, for the north and northwest of Victoria at least, the heaviest falls may not arrive until Sunday. A low pressure system from South Australia will arrive in Victoria late tomorrow. From 2 p.m. today, federal disaster recovery payments will be available for people who live in the local government areas of Benalla, Burundara, Central Goldfields, Greater Bendigo, Loddon, Mooney Valley, Mount Alexander, uh, Murundindi and Yarra. Now, without being alarmist, it is a very grim picture and a lot of people are affected. It's expected that 300,000 tonnes of waste will end up in landfill because of the October floods. It is a devastating picture. I must say I'm slightly amused that Scott Morrison has joined the speaker circuit, being described as, quote, the true definition of a leader with a 360 degree worldview. It says during, during his tenure, Morrison was tasked with several difficulties that required unique and innovative solutions, unquote. It talks about Morrison mitigating an economic crisis. I thought he actually exacerbated it. Quote, controlling natural disasters. Is he the bloke who said, I don't hold a hose? But the citation says, Prime Minister Morrison led Australia with his particular brand of calm, decisiveness and rationale, a globalisation mastermind. Morrison lends his boundless influence and experience to audiences around the world. Unquote. Is that Australia's Morrison? He's joined the Worldwide Speakers Group. Not sure what the qualifications are for that. But if it's not evangelical, I think the good ScoMo might struggle. Tonight, we're a week away from this overhyped budget. I'll have something to say. We rightly remembered last week the 202 people murdered by terrorists in Bali. What about the 238 who lost their lives in MH370 and government forgets them? I'll talk about that. The latest on the British scene, but basically the world's sixth largest economy has no leader. Extraordinary developments in America. And I've some, got some fascinating stuff to show you as I talk to Peggy Grandy. And the wokeism in sport, sport continues. It's cricket now, not just netball. And a look at an extraordinary piece of writing by Stan Grant. Bizarre might be another word. Stay with me. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. A budget will be brought down by the new government a week from today. The Treasurer is, as we know, 44-year-old Jim Chalmers, who's referred to as Dr Jim Chalmers. His doctorate is from the Australian National University, writing a thesis on the Prime Ministership of Paul Keating, titled, quote, Brawler Statesman, Paul Keating and Prime Ministerial Leadership in Australia, unquote. Beyond that, he has degrees from Griffith University, a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Communications. So. The doctorate is a bit misleading. I'm not sure of his economic qualifications. He was the chief of staff to Wayne Swan three years ago. Remember all those budgets that were going to go into surplus? I certainly wish him well, but I really wonder whether his head is appropriately around the problems we face. For example, Australians have been ravaged by floods and most recently in New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania. In a press conference at Parliament House yesterday, he delivered the motherhood statement, and I quote it, to everyone involved at keeping Australians safe, to cleaning up after the event, we say thank you. Thank you so much to all the amazing Australians who are looking out for each other and looking after each other as we confront yet another set of natural disasters which are impacting many Australians around the country. Australians are there for each other when times are tough, 
and we assure people the government will be there for them as well, unquote. Don't you like it? Government will be there for them. You've been wiped out by floods. You're still wading through water and mud and each adult gets $1,000, one off, and each child 400. What'll that get you? Where is there an innovative policy to address national natural disasters? I've called for years and years for a national disaster fund. The budget each year would appropriate funds. Last year's budget spending was approximately $900 billion. That's 900,000 million, almost a trillion dollars. So stick 500 million, a piddling budget amount, into a sinking fund each year. Put people like Peter Costello and a couple of former prime ministers in charge of it, invest the money, the kitty grows, and there are immediate funds on application for people facing disasters. Then the government might be able to say, Dr. Chalmers, the government will be there for you. Plainly, it is not. We are swamped with alarmist talk that now, because some of the most productive Australia has been devastated, produce has been destroyed. The Murray-Darling Basin is a $22 billion food bowl supplying almost a quarter of the nation's milk supply. Communities are going to have to be rebuilt and grocery prices will go up and that will affect inflation. You'll see it on the supermarket shelves, apples, oranges, stone fruit, meat, milk. The Dr. Chalmers response is the Morrison response, a thousand bucks per adult, 400 per child. Rely on volunteers and in two weeks time, as with the floods in Lismore and the bushfires in New South Wales, they'll all be forgotten. So Dr. Chalmers, you wanted government. The other mob didn't deliver on disasters. What are you doing? Now the taxpayer wouldn't be aware that there is an outfit called the Department of Health and Aged Care Medicare Compliance Audit and Review Program. Bloody long name, isn't it? But the key word, compliance. Well, we now learn that up to 30% of Medicare's annual budget is being wasted each year by medical practitioners making errors or deliberately overcharging. Some doctors charging for services that were either unnecessary or never delivered, including for dead people. Patients' records have been falsified to boost doctors' profits. But Dr. Chalmers, you're the custodian of our money. What the hell is the Medicare compliance audit and review program doing? I'll tell you what they're doing, watching $8 billion of our money walk out the door. Now, not all doctors are rorting the system, but $8 billion has gone missing. Every politician boringly and repetitively defends Medicare. But the fee for a doctor bulk billing for a standard consultation is about $38. The doctor who doesn't bulk bill for a standard consultation privately, about $85. No wonder we face a massive doctor shortage. Would you and I provide any service, let alone an important medical consultation for $38? Then there's the NDIS, whose costs are on track to be over 60 billion by the end of the decade. The 31 billion this year is already 50% higher than the Productivity Commission envisaged. But then the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission Chief, Michael Phelan, estimates that as much as 15 to 20% of the 30 billion that it costs a year is being misused. Your money. It says a lot of this abuse is a scheme obviously hopelessly monitored, attributed to crime bosses and drug traffickers. Michael Fielder has said, when they're not rorting the NDIS, they're importing drugs or standing over people committing other heinous crimes. But what you're saying to me right now is you're shaking your heads. How the hell does this happen? Where is the due diligence? What I'm saying is this budget, in a week's time, will be dishing out nearly a trillion dollars of our money, about equal to the nation's debt. Can't we save, say, 10% of that? 10% would be about 90 billion. Mark my words, there'll be no cuts in spending approximating 90 billion. These are the prince of spenders, the Labor Party. Chalmers will take money from projects targeted by the previous government to fund promises made by Labor in the election campaign. And the crisis in economic management will continue. And remember, Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers have a duty of care to the nation. On top of that, I've just said, we then have an energy policy. 
legislating that 82% of our electricity will come from renewable sources by 2030, a dependence on the weather for reliable power. A nation swimming in economic problems, yet our economic growth will be hopelessly undermined by the government's energy policies. I said at the beginning, I'm not an alarmist, but this is a looming crisis with a capital C. I spoke last month about a very important issue almost forgotten, the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines flight MH370, which went missing in 2014. Tony Abbott was the then Australian Prime Minister. He argued in 2020 that he had been told, quote, by the very top levels of the Malaysian government, that from very, very early on, they thought it was a murder-suicide by the pilot. It was crystal clear to me, said Tony Abbott, that they had a very clear understanding that this almost certainly was what happened, unquote. This prompted comments from one of the Malaysian government's most senior figures, Lim Kit Siang, to call for an international inquiry into the plane's disappearance. Well, nothing's happened. And the most important point for such an inquiry would be to answer the question, why did the Malaysian and the Australian governments persist with searching the wrong place and ignoring the murder-suicide theory? In 2020, in a documentary on all of this, the senior public servant Martin Dolan, the former chief commissioner of the Australian Transport Safety Bureau and the man in charge of the search for the Malaysian Airlines flight, admitted that the $200 million search for MH370 may have failed because he and the ATSB, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, refused to accept that the flight's captain had hijacked his own aircraft. He conceded that new evidence increasingly proves that the ATSB's theory that the flight was unpiloted at the end was incorrect. Byron Bailey has written to me on any number of times, a former RAAF pilot who was senior captain with Emirates for 15 years. He's flown the same model, B777, as MH370. And the dominant opinion put by people like Byron Bailey and other commercial airline pilots who know this scene backwards is that MH370 was hijacked by its captain. Byron Bailey has said over and over again that a rogue pilot likely depressurized the aircraft to kill the passengers and crew through oxygen deprivation, while he alone in the cockpit had a much longer oxygen supply. Well, why am I going back to this issue? Well, the same Byron Bailey wrote to me last week with a very important point, and I quote Byron. Today, we acknowledge the awful Bali, Bali Islamist bombing of 20 years ago, which killed 202 people. He said, it's not a stretch of the imagination to regard the planned murder of 238 people by a politically active supporter of the Islamist politician Anwar Ibrahim as also a terror event, even though he planned to hide his evil deed deep in the Southern Indian Ocean, unquote. Wrote Byron Bailey, I find it hard to believe that in a Western democracy, such an event could be covered up. Now, Byron Bailey is a veteran commercial pilot with more than 50 years experience, 26,000 flying hours, a former RAAF fighter pilot and trainer. He was a senior captain with Emirates for 15 years, during which he flew the same model Boeing 777 passenger jet as Malaysian Airlines MH370. He joins me tonight. Byron, thank you for your time. You've said a member of the MH370 search planning team has been an inside informant for you. What were you told? Well, <clears throat> when I rang him um, back in 2014, he told me they had the deleted flight plan the FBI had supplied to them that the captain had done to the Southern Indian Ocean. Now, why would a um, captain plan this? The Australian Transport Safety Bureau denied the existence of this flight plan. And um, it was only after the search was all over that when I bumped into him and said, this really was a crazy farce, he said yes. And I was present with Warren Truss when the ATSB um, aviation expert was planning the search on a flight. Just interrupt you there, Byron, for our viewers. Warren yes. Truss at the time was the relevant transport minister. Yes. 
He was the Deputy Prime Minister yep. and Transport Minister. Yep. Um, and the, uh, this person told me that, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, captain planned the flight for the Southern Indian Ocean. When the search started, the search was going in the opposite direction. It was going north, which leads me to believe there must have been some political mm. interference. Mm. Well, we know Warren Cross was a rather weak, stupid man. And I think you and I discussed um, back in 2016 on this very point mm. that, um, <coughs> excuse me, this... Uh, I was talking quite a while. On no, I'll, just, well, program I'll, I'll just spare you there for a minute. I'll just spare you there a minute because uh, what we're talking about is this Boeing 777 with 239 people on board. It just disappeared en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. Six Australians lost their lives. Now, it has become one of aviation's biggest mysteries. Just coming back to you, Byron, surely if it were murder-suicide, you're saying where the plane finished up wasn't where these expensive searches were taking place, which you and other expert colleagues told them, but they ignored you. Yes. Why did they, ignore, why did they ignore the advice from those who were trained to know? And why does government continue to show little concern <laughs> about getting the right answers? Yes, it's unbelievable, Alan. Look, in uh, January of this year, I submitted a complaint to the Australian Federal Police uh, under Section 142.2 of the Commonwealth Criminal Code, Code against Warren Truss that the search had been switched from where we believe the aircraft was ditched because there was the... Which was south of Perth, virtually south of Perth, and they went north of Perth. Yes, well, the actual search area is um, 2,200 kilometres in a uh, direction of 240 from Perth. Mm. What is annoying is that the search was switched yeah. Now, you and I discussed at the time yeah. back in 2016 yeah. the fact that the search was switched from a glide of south of uh, where the aircraft had an engine um, run out of fuel to the opposite direction. Yeah. And for yeah. nearly four years, they just well, went well, the let, me just, let me just take this on a bit then. I mean, the pilot we know had links to the Malaysian political opposition. He was distantly related yes. by marriage to the Prime Minister in waiting, Anwar Ibrahim. And yes. the plane went missing a day after Mr. Anwar was sentenced to what was widely seen as a second politically motivated jail term for sodomy. Now, yes. Byron, wasn't the pilot of MH370, Zahari, widely reported to have attended that hearing? And why do you think yes. an investigation by the Malaysian government concluded there was no evidence Zahari had hijacked his own aircraft. Why did they come to that conclusion? They were worried about the political fallout. Oh, it was a cover-up. Yeah, look, they, uh, uh, you know, look, it's quite appalling. I, I just kind of feel that uh, um, Julie Bishop was protecting the Malaysian government and the Malaysian because the liability would have been massive, massive. if, if yes. yeah. If, so if so what, what happened then, what happened then, the Malaysian Police Inspector General, following Tony Abbott's comments, responded by saying the claims that it was murder-suicide couldn't be verified, coming back to your point about massive conversation, if it were, unless the plane was found. But Byron, how convenient was that? Because pilots in the know like you constantly said they were searching in the wrong place. Yes. I mean, I've demonstrated twice in Boeing 777 simulators a glide of about 100 miles. If you remember the, um, the February 2020, mm. uh, documentary by Sky News, mm. I demonstrated with Peter Stefanovic in the right seat, a glide of about 100 miles 
uh, which would put it just south of 39 south in the latitude in the mm. Southern Indian Ocean. Mm. Mm. Now, they refused the Australian Transport Safety Bureau to search there. That's Instead, right. they went in the opposite direction. And, and, still have, and still have refused. So wasn't Sir Angus Houston, head of the Australian-led search for MH370, and that's the search that we've already agreed was compromised, they went in the wrong direction. Uh, who dreamt up the notion that the plane had crashed west of Perth? I mean, Houston said, quote, the surface search went on longer than normally would be the case, and that was because of sensitivities from our partners. Now, after the search was called off, Houston's deputy, Judah Zilke, said, the biggest thing I've learned from being involved in the search was actually the huge cultural differences between the countries involved. We were, in effect, dealing with China as much as we were dealing with Malaysia. It's important to remember that people are culturally the way they are for a reason. Now, the plane was en route, Byron, from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, hence China yes. and Malaysia being involved. Houston's on the record as making very sympathetic observations about China, saying things like China is not an enemy. Do you reckon this affected his judgment here? Oh, I absolutely think so, yes. It's... Uh... But, but nothing, not, by nothing can confirm the intellectual shortcomings of the whole Western world more than its willingness to accept that a modern Boeing 777, which you know backwards, can vanish without criminal interference of some kind. And Houston is one of Sir Angus Houston, uh, one of the people suspected of this naivety. Yes. He was on a pilot's course in the RAAF behind me. Um, he was put in charge of the search. He headed the Joint Aviation Coordination Centre in uh, March and April, sorry, in April and May yeah. and July mm. of 2014. And then he was called away with Julie Bishop to um, look after the MH17 search. Mm. Well, let's just finish this up here. Look, let, let's just sum this up. Yeah. Because what you've established, I wanted to speak to you tonight because this bloke knows that kind of plane backwards, inside out. And basically, from everything that he knows and his colleagues know, they've simply said this very expensive, hundreds of millions of dollars, the search went in the wrong direction. So just finally, yes. Byron, where do we go from here? Is there, we, we celebrated, or sorry, honoured 200 people, 202 dead people in Bali. What about the fate of 238 people, six of whom are Australians, who, for whom no finality exists? Where do we go from here? Look, I, I wrote in The Australian back in 2016, there had to be a Royal Commission um, because they were searching in the wrong area. Us pilots knew, and I was told by an informant in the uh, in the Joint uh, Aviation Coordination Centre that they had knowledge that the captain was responsible, that the FBI flight plan, mm. um, which was supplied to the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, they denied it existed for nearly mm. two years. Yet it's leaked to me, I have it in my position. Mm. The Australian Federal Police won't touch it because our barrister with supporting us pilots Amazing. says the is, Australian yeah. Federal Police again. Look, we're yeah. running out, we've run out of time, Byron, but uh, I just want to sum up. I mean, this is a massive cover-up, isn't it? And no one in government... Massive. Mass murder. Mass murder. Of a, of a Muslim captain, yes. And, and there's no, been no answer to a mass murder of 238 people. Byron, lovely to talk to you. Sorry to cut you off there. But time is always the yes. enemy when you're, doing, when you're doing live television. But you and I will keep in touch. He's a great correspondent. And we'll Please. see if we can make some yes. progress with the government. I doubt it, but we'll have a go. Wonderful to talk to you, Byron, and you keep well. Well, the hope is the federal ICAC. May, uh, we may be able to, yes. absolutely, may be able to. Good to talk to you. There he is, yes. Byron Bailey. I've often spoken on this program about the crisis in Western political leadership. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland has the world's sixth largest economy by GDP, the eighth largest by purchasing power. 
It's a high income economy. It performs well in international rankings of education, healthcare, life expectancy and human development. It's been a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council since its first session in 1946. And it's a valuable trading and security partner of Australia. Yet today, the United Kingdom is leaderless. I spoke last night to Jake Thrupp, who's just been to a volcanic Conservative Party conference. The news cycle has moved even since I spoke to Jake. A headline story today in Britain says, the Prime Minister Liz Truss is no longer leading, she's being led. The Prime Minister is in office, but not in power. As Christopher Hope writes, from the eye of the political storm, how long can this go on? Jeremy Hunt is the new Chancellor. He's ditched everything that Liz Truss stood for. Apart from the complete reversal of the tax measures under the so-called growth plan, the new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has said support for energy bills will end in April rather than continue for two years as Liz Truss promised. The UK Prime Minister is now completely politically naked. As Christopher Hope writes today, quote, it was a political disembowelment of a scale that I cannot remember seeing in my two decades covering British politics, delivered by Jeremy Hunt with the calmness of a human resources manager sacking someone by Zoom. He says, Ms. Truss's authority was already draining away after she fired Mr. Kwarteng, but the scale of Monday's reversals has dealt a hammer blow to her authority, unquote. He writes, Trussonomics is over, and so probably is Liz Truss's time in number 10. He said, if you take away her promise of tax cuts, what's left? A politician who makes six out of 10 for a speech, she's not a good speaker, with none of the magic of Boris Johnson, her predecessor, unquote. Well, the one point with which I would disagree in relation to the Christopher Hope story is that he argues her supporters are counting her survival in weeks, not months. I would imagine it may be only days. Conservative MPs are already taking matters into their own hands by submitting letters of no confidence in her leadership. Christopher Hope says he was sent over the weekend a single WhatsApp message from a prominent member of the 2019 intake of Tory MPs. The message said, quote, Rishi PM, Hunt Chancellor, Penny, as in Mordant, Foreign Secretary, and it's a done deal, unquote. But given that Rishi Sunak is the man who began the disemboweling, to use a word with some currency, Rishi Sunak led the disemboweling of Boris Johnson, and Boris still has massive support in the parliament and in the national electorate. Rishi for PM may not wash, but I guess that's for another day. Some of the comments though by corporate Britain are devastating, such that trust can't survive. Stuart Rose, the former head of the British department store Marks & Spencer and chairman of the supermarket chain Asda, told the Financial Times that Truss had lost the confidence of business and investors. He said, quote, as Prime Minister, you have to have confidence of business, investors, the electorate and colleagues in the party. She has none of these. Dame Alison Carnworth, a former chairwoman of Land Securities and senior advisor at the investment bank Evercore, said Liz, Liz Truss had, quote, no mandate, insufficient support in Parliament, incomprehensible economic policies, and lacks style, charisma, and authority, unquote. Guy Hands, the founder of the private equity firm Terra Firma, argued that Truss, quote, should go as soon as possible, unquote. George Osmond, the former Tory Chancellor, argued of Liz Truss, quote, she's Pino, Prime Minister in name only. These are staggering indictments. As I speak to you, the chairman of the powerful 1922 Committee of Conservative Backbenchers is meeting right now with Liz Truss. There are suggestions that he will be asking her to stand aside. She seems to have no choice, given that many of the policies she campaigned on during that leadership contest have been abandoned. Her judgment is shot. The world is watching as the nation with the sixth largest economy is in a state of political rigor mortis. The thing is, rigor mortis is a temporary condition lasting about eight hours. Liz Truss will last longer than that, but only just.
Well, after a 15-month investigation involving 1,000 interviews, countless documents and nine televised public hearings, a House of Representatives committee of two Republicans in America, two Republicans who are only Republicans in name, they're outspoken opponents, if not haters, of Donald Trump, together with seven Democrats. Unsurprisingly, they voted unanimously to issue a summons to Donald Trump to attend the committee probe. As Donald Trump rightly says, why didn't the committee ask him to testify months ago? Why did they wait until the end? Let's go to Peggy Grandy for her thoughts on this latest determination to get Donald Trump. Peggy, lovely to have you again. But how on earth is this an objective committee with two Republicans who are Trump haters and seven Democrats? <laughs> Well, thank you, Alan, as always, for having me on. And this was not intended to be an objection, uh, an, an unbiased um, committee at all. It was intended just to go after Donald Trump. And we could have easily, if this was a book, we could have flipped to the end and known exactly how it ended. Trump, guilty, unanimous, period. Yeah. There was no other way that this was going to turn out. It was a predestined conclusion. And, you know, this committee, they have been after Donald Trump, not after the truth. And that's been the problem. And people have seen right through it from the mm. very beginning. Mm. I mean, he's been issued with a subpoena to appear. But isn't it true he can run down the clock on this if the control of the House shifts to the Republicans in three weeks time, the midterm election, they'll immediately end the investigation, won't they? Of course. And this was a made-for-TV spectacle. This was not intended to be any sort of fair and unbiased trial of any kind. It was a one-sided lynching of Donald Trump trying to ruin his reputation and trying to prevent him from running for office again. This was the very last meeting of the January 6th committee. And so, of course, there's not going to be any follow-up for this. It was never on any sort of legal standing. And so this is the conclusion we could have predicted, and it's not going to go anywhere. Mm. Well, now, look, this is very interesting, my viewers. I say to you, because Peggy's aware of this, but Donald Trump has been subjected, as we've been saying here, for two years to the most vicious attacks as a political pariah because he questioned the validity of the presidential election. Now, the hypocrisy of the Democrats is breathtaking. Uh, we've put together a little montage here, and Peggy with us will watch this montage of Democrats arguing that Trump stole the 2016 election. Now, check your screens and listen to this cavalcade of hypocritical Democrats. You win with Russian interference, though. That's, That's a real what I'm thing. scared about no, in 2020. But, but rightly. Because right. I think he's an illegitimate president that didn't really win. So how do you, you know, fight against that in 2020? You are absolutely right. He is an illegitimate president in my mind. Would you be my vice presidential candidate? <laughs> Folks, look, I absolutely agree. Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election and he was put into office because the Russians interfered. Trump knows he's an illegitimate president. The president-elect, although legally elected, is not legitimate. I don't see this president-elect as a legitimate president. You said you believe that Russia's interference altered the outcome of the election. I do. We have a president who, if in fact it is proven, uh, has been assisted by the Russians and may in fact not be a legitimate president. The one thing that Trump is fearful of uh, when it comes to his being president is that finally we will see how illegitimate his victory actually was. I have an objection. I object to the 15 votes from the state of North Carolina. I object because people are horrified. He's an illegitimate president. Do you believe Trump is a legitimate president? What I believe is that there's no question that the outcome of this election was affected by the Russian interference. But there absolutely is a cloud of illegitimacy. So that legitimacy is in question, yes. So that was a very tainted election. And and in that sense, it's illegitimate. Why do you think the president is going to such great lengths to essentially prove that he beat you? Because he knows he didn't. He knows he's an illegitimate president. Stolen emails. Stolen drone. Stolen drone. Stolen election. Welcome to the world of unprecedented Trump. So do you believe President Trump is an illegitimate president? Based on what I just said, which I can't retract. <laughs> the Russian attempt to, ha to have the election, and frankly, the FBI's uh, weighing in on the election, I think make the, make, makes his election illegitimate. There was a widespread understanding that this election was not on the level. We still don't know what really happened, Isaac. I mean, there's just a lot that I think 
will be revealed, history will discover, but you don't win by three million votes and have all this other shenanigans stuff going on and not come away with an idea like, whoa, something's not right here. The outcome of the election was affected by their interference, and now we need to know, you know to what degree, uh, if any, the Trump campaign was actually in collusion with the, uh, so he knows he's an illegitimate president. So of course he's obsessed with me. And I believe that it's a guilty conscience. Peggy, uh, it was worth showing that, that the hypocrisy is breathtaking. I mean, what do you make of this? Well, I think actually that clip could have gone on and on and on and on. And I don't know, maybe the Democrats think that we don't have YouTube or the Internet or a memory at all, because <laughs> we all remember them doing this. But now all of a sudden we're racist or we're unhinged or insane if we question the legitimacy of the election. You know, the bigger question here is we should, as Americans and as democracy loving people all over the world, we should have have security in free and fair, safe and secure elections. We should have confidence in that. It's okay to question where there are places that there are irregularities. And there's all kinds of irregularities that have been pointed out from the last election. And so these are fair criticisms and questions to ask, but not according to the Democrats. It's only okay for them to ask. But if we ask, we're thrown in jail, we're censored, we're mm. silenced. Um, but they forget. Yeah, People can't. like Alan Jones are going to run their clips. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Biden says he'll run for a second term <laughs> and believes he can beat Donald Trump again. He'll be 80 next month. Look, I played you this last week, but it needs to be played again. This poor man does deserve a platform, but it's a platform into a nursing home. Have a look at this. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in the foot him. Uh, foot, foot, Excuse me, the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping. <laughs> Peggy, the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping. What the hell, Peggy? Well, it's not necessarily the age, a number. It's his mental capacity, which certainly is diminished. And America sees it. The world sees it. It's scary. It's dangerous. I mean, the greatest hits keep coming from this man day after day after day. You know, starting a speech by saying, I'll start with two words, made in America. Mm. He was eating under big ice cream cone this week. And he said, our economy in America is strong as hell. He's sniffing young girls hair at events that he goes to. I mean, this man should not be around the public and he shouldn't certainly be in front of a microphone. Mm, absolutely. It's scary and dangerous. American weakness is yeah, on full display with this. You're the leader of the free world. He's the leader of the free world. What about Tulsi Gabbard? She was a Democratic presidential candidate. She's left the Democratic Party, denouncing the organisation as an elitist cabal. She said, I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that is now under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by racialising every issue and stoke anti-white racism. Peggy, I think you've had lunch with her, have you? Well, I was at a dinner with her recently and she is strong, confident and fabulous. And she's managed to do something that we don't see very often, which is have agreement that what she did, the left and the right agree that they're both glad she did what she did. The left has seen her as a thorn in their side for far too long and they're happy to have her out. And the right has seen her as somebody who finally came to her senses and is a person of common sense. You know, I think she would probably subscribe to what Ronald Reagan said, which is, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party yeah. left me. Yeah, and right. if you'll recall, we had lunch in L.A., I think about 2019. And you said, who are the Dems going to put up to run? And I said, well, if they were smart, they would put up somebody like Tulsi Gabbard. And I said, but they're not smart, so they won't do that. That's They'll right. probably kick her yeah, out. And it. that has proven to be true all these years later. She's criticized President Biden for, quote, pouring fuel on the flames of division in the country. Peggy, has her criticism gained any coverage from the predominantly left-wing media? 
Well, nobody's talking about it except for to criticize her. And if they were smart, rather than criticizing her, they would listen to the criticisms that she has had of her party and do some self-reflection. But they're certainly not going to do that. Anybody who disagrees is going to be thrown out, silenced, canceled. And Tulsi Gabbard is better off without the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And they certainly are not in a better place now that she's left. And now the former House Speaker, Newt Gingrich, praised Tulsi Gabbard, who I might add is a very distinguished American, a United States Army Reserve officer. She represented Hawaii in the Congress, the first Hindu member of Congress and the first Samoan American voting member of Congress. She's 49. Gingrich argued she was one of many Americans who traditionally voted blue and now find the Democrats unrecognisable. Peggy? Well, she has a bright future ahead of her, and she's everything that the Democrats say that they value. But certainly by the criticism that we've seen of her by her own party, it's value in name only. They certainly don't value somebody who is a hero, a patriot, and strong and successful like Tulsi Gabbard. So she's got a bright future ahead. It won't be with the Democrat Party. Mm. And just before we go, look, I might not get time for this, but I want to raise with you next week uh, the Californian Governor Newsom has signed this California Assembly Bill. I've only been talking about this this week. California Assembly Bill 2098, making it the first state in America to attempt to censor what physicians can say about COVID-19 to their patients. Uh, just, we'll, we'll go to this in some detail next week, Peggy, but is this constitutional? It's absolutely not. Free speech is protected by the First Amendment. And not only is this putting a blockade between patients and their doctors, but more importantly, it's putting a block between patients and the truth. Mm. And if we went on consensus, science would never evolve. Science is continually changing as we find additional facts. And um, so it shouldn't ever be based on consensus. And thank goodness we didn't stick with the first round of the COVID thinking that we had. Things have continued to evolve and California is on the wrong side of everything. Mm. We have the highest taxes, the highest gas prices. We have the lowest learning um, in our schools. And Gavin Newsom actually rolled out a plan a week or so ago to, to compost corpses. So there's nothing about California that we should be following. The other states should be very nervous if California passes this, but it is not constitutional and it should not be allowed. Good on you, Peggy. Wonderful stuff. We'll go into some detail about that next week because there is detail there which is relevant to Australia. Peggy, great to talk to you. Always lovely to gather your insights. Peggy Grandy you, in America. Alan. Things have changed quickly in this country, haven't they? Remember when Aussie sports stars were just sports stars? They played their game, they didn't play politics, they represented their country with pride. It seems to have all changed. These days our sports stars won't shut up about the woke political causes of the day, taking a knee, climate change, welcome to country. I respectfully suspect that they know little about the detail of any of those issues. Last night on this program, I took aim at Netball Australia's top players for spitting the dummy after Gina Reinhardt, who owns the iron ore mining company Hancock Prospecting, bailed out Netball, which has found itself with $11 million of debts and losses. But rather than thanking and appreciating the generosity of Gina Reinhardt, Australia's top Netball team, the Diamonds, has boycotted the new uniform which bears the Hancock Prospecting logo. This came after Shani Norder, who played 46 times for Australia and skippered the team in 2017, called on Netball Australia to, quote, do better than accept money from Gina Reinhardt, whom she called, quote, a climate denier. Diamond's great Bianca Chatfield agreed with her. Chatfield said defiantly, modern athletes, quote, are just not going to put up with such sponsors. I think it all comes down to that. When Netball Australia signed their partnership, with their new deal with Hancock, it just wasn't communicated to the playing group, unquote. Wasn't communicated. The new chair of Netball Australia, Wendy Archer, has said that the Australian Netball Players Association were advised in July of, quote, an impending mining partnership, unquote. The new CEO of Netball Australia, Kelly Ryan, said that when she briefed the player group on the deal on September 28, quote, no one raised any objections. Then you've got the Indigenous player, Donnell Wallum, expressing discomfort with Gina Reinhart's record on Indigenous issues. I mean, everywhere you turn, ignorance kicks in. Iron ore mining 
employs more Indigenous people than any other industry. But unfortunately, all this wokeism doesn't stop at netball. Now the captain of Australia's cricket team, the gifted and thoroughly decent Pat Cummins, has joined the woke sports bandwagon. This morning we learn that Pat has taken issue with Alinta Energy's sponsorship of his cricket team because they don't align with his values on climate change. Now, Pat, I, you know I'm a great supporter, but it is not your cricket team. It is the Australian team. And for those who don't know, Alinta Energy is an Australian energy and gas distributor. They keep the lights on across the country, from the iron ore fields of WA to the offices of Brisbane and Melbourne. Notably, they also operate several gas peaker plants, which were installed to help keep the lights on when Australia's wind turbines and solar panels don't produce power on a windless night. But Pat wants nothing to do with them. He'll not be seen in their ads this summer. He said cricket needed to think carefully about which companies they're aligned with. I think an outfit that keeps the lights on would be supported by all Australians. The risk that Patrick Cummins faces is that this overt branding of some companies is turning people away from cricket. It would be a sad day if the same people were turned away from Pat Cummins, the person. He's a man of special quality. He has today denied that he pressured Cricket Australia to end its $40 million sponsorship with Alinta, but confirmed that he did speak to Cricket Australia's Chief Executive Nick Hockley with ethical objections to Alinta's contract, presumably because of their carbon dioxide emissions. Cricket Australia then confirmed its sponsorship deal with Alinta would only be extended for one more season. As Pat said, quote, I think the most obvious front of mind things you can see is who we partner with. So I hope that when we think of who we want to align with, who we want to invite into being part of cricket, I hope climate is a real priority. Unquote. Pat, I don't know what you know about climate, but have you ever contemplated the thought that you might be wrong? And secondly, that many in the cricket community don't like the look of sporting teams entering the realm of politics. The battler in Struggle Street knows that with the lucrative salaries paid to Australian cricketers, they can afford to pay more for electricity and gas. But here's some news, Pat, for you and your fellow cricketers. The average punter can't. And because of activists like you, energy prices are skyrocketing. Next year, we may well be set for blackouts, shortages, and further escalation in price. You'll be fine. You can cop the high bills. And don't forget those poor Indians against whom you play their families want our cheap, clean Australian coal so their kids can do their homework at night and don't have to choke on fumes while their dinner's cooking. Pat, you know me, I'm old school. It's the job of sportsmen and women to play sport. My view is that sport will be ruined if it becomes a platform for the woke and for entering the culture wars. If a sportsman or sportswoman wants to join the political battle over things like climate, do what the rugby player David Pocock has done. Find a seat in the parliament and advocate from there. Till then, remember that the captain of Australia in any team has a responsibility to the sport, but also to the supporters, many of whom are also corporate people. Alienate them because of some uninformed ideological position, which might involve embracing nonsense and the likely damage to sport may well put playing futures at risk. Pat, you have to be careful, as does netball, not to bite the hand that feeds you. Before we go, the other day the ABC's Stan Grant wrote what could be one of the most bizarre articles I've ever read. On Sunday, Stan wrote an article titled, To understand China, you need to understand whiteness, yet it's missing from the conversation, unquote. He wrote, it's not possible to understand China without understanding race and racism, specifically without understanding whiteness. He said, in some ways, Xi's China may represent the end of whiteness, except that the Chinese Communist Party itself mirrors whiteness, he said. He went on, if whiteness is power, Xi Jinping is its champion, the continuation of white power in darker skin, unquote. First of all, how does the Chinese Communist Party mirror whiteness? The CCP is not a democracy. 
They've got no respect for human rights. They don't respect the rule of law. They're a one-party state. Stan, name one white country around the world that has a similar system of government. You see, white people were the first to end slavery. White people were the first to take to immigrants en masse. White people were the first to pass racial discrimination laws. White people were the first to go to war to protect the rights of ethnic and religious minorities. White people were the first to give women rights and acknowledge and empower indigenous people. Stan, what are you talking about? Stan's next suggestion is that nationalism is a white phenomenon. I'm gobsmacked. Stan, are you telling me that Japan wasn't an ethnic nationalist state under the rule of Emperor Hirohito? He's not white. Stan, are you telling me that India isn't a nationalist state under the rule of the BJP party? They're not white. Stan, are you telling me that Libya, Iran, Saudi Arabia aren't nationalist states? They're not white. But you say nationalism is a white phenomenon. How about Armenia, Cambodia, Vietnam, Indonesia? All these have gone through or are going through periods of ethnic nationalism and none of them are white. Stan, you can't make grand assertions like this on the taxpayer's dime. By the way, Stan, there is nothing wrong with being white. You went to Australia's most prestigious universities. You started out work at the Canberra Times, then Macquarie Radio, then the Seven Network, then the ABC. You worked for the World Bank, CNN, Sky News. You've achieved significant distinctions. And you're now back at the ABC. You're the current professor of global affairs at Griffith University. You occupy the vice chancellor's chair of Australian indigenous belonging at Charles Sturt University. Stan, aren't all these organizations white, to use your terminology? Are they therefore racist? If so, how have you been so successful as an indigenous Australian? Stan, give us some credit and stop using race to divide people. It's cheap, it's untrue. And I suspect the vast majority of ethnic minorities in Australia agree with me. That's all from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8 p.m. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.